in the Bible. And let's start with the first psalm in page 543 of your Bibles. And uh, this, this first psalm is a good basis to start with. But let's pray to begin with. Father, last week we, uh, we looked at how you assure us of your love. And uh, you give us promises so that we can be confident of your love. And we ask that again, that you would speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. I became a Christian in uh, September 1984. And uh, when I became a Christian, I had this, this urge in me to want to get to know what was in this book, in the Bible, what God's Word said. And uh, to help me understand what was in here, I picked up a little booklet that just had questions in it that helped you unpack what it said. So it used to t help you find a relevant passage to read and then help you unpack the meaning and the promises that were in there and how it applied to my life. So I would sit down with a pen and paper and write down my thoughts, uh, the answers to the questions and other questions that I would have. And uh, Interestingly, it was this psalm was one of the first passages that I studied. And uh, it's through this that I can say, as I've looked at it, that this book, the Bible, has become a delight to me. It's an incredible book. It's a unique book. First of all, the Bible is unique in its continuity. Here's a book that's been written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from every walk of life, kings to fishermen, doctors to poets, statesmen, to peasants. It's written in different places, in palaces and in deserts, on hillsides and in dungeons. Written during times of war and times of peace, during heights of joy and depths of sorrow. It's been written on three continents, in three languages. It covers hundreds of controversial subjects. Controversial subjects are obviously subjects which would create opposing opinions you could not ask for a more diverse background to a book. And yet, in this book, there is harmony and continuity from the beginning right through to the end. There is one unfolding story, despite the diversity of background. And it's this, God's rescue plan for mankind. It's unique. It's also unique in its popularity, in its circulation, its translation, and its effect on surrounding literature. Firstly, it's estimated that nearly one and a quarter million Bibles and New Testaments are sold in the United Kingdom every year. There was a Times article headed, uh, Forget the Brit Modern British Novelist, the Bible is the biggest selling book every year. And it goes on to say that, as usual, the top seller by several miles was the Bible. If cumulative sales of the Bible were frankly reflected in bestseller lists, it would be a rare week where anything else would achieve a look-in. from the Times. It's the world's number one bestseller. It's unique in its translation. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. 
Shakespeare's works, for instance, have been uh, translated into 60 languages. And there are only two books that top 100. One of them is the Quran, 128 languages. And then there's the Bible, 1,668 languages, with another 840 on the way, in whole or part. I bet you didn't even know there were that many languages. But its popularity also extends to its influence on surrounding literature. It has been estimated that if every Bible in a major city like Birmingham were destroyed, every Bible destroyed, the book could be restored in all its essential parts from the quotations on the shelves of the city public library. There are works concerning almost all the great literary writers devoted especially to showing how much the Bible has influenced them. It's unique. And if you're an intelligent person, you will read the one book that has drawn more attention than any other, if you're searching for the truth. It's also the most powerful book. Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin described it as high explosive. J.B. Phillips, who translated the New Testament, said that translating the New Testament was like rewiring a house while the old wiring was still alive. You kept feeling the power as you translated it. Here's a 51-year-old shopkeeper. I was reading the Gospel according to Mark. When I read about the crucifixion, I had an indescribable feeling which included a combination of fear, ecstasy and awe. I knew Jesus Christ was with me. It's the most powerful book. And in a world where people seek power or contact with the supernatural power, where there's a rise of interest in occult films and videos, horoscopes, tarot cards, Ouija boards, some contact with supernatural forces that aren't good, we've got the Bible. We can be in contact with a supernatural power more powerful than any other who only wants good for you, God himself. It's the most powerful book in the world. It's also the most precious book. We take it for granted in the West, but in places like China, where there is a spiritual revival despite heavy persecution, new Christians have a tremendous hunger for the scriptures. Let me read this. This has not been dulled, by, but rather sharpened by a shortage of Bibles, this hunger. In many cases, the sole owner of the Bible in a group will tear out pages which are shared around and laboriously copied out by hand. There will be one Bible amongst hundreds of believers, and that is not uncommon. People memorise lengthy passages over there, whole books, even the whole New Testament by heart. Why then is this book the most popular, the most powerful, and the most precious book? Well, the short answer is that it gives answers to life, the big things of life and the everyday things of life, because they're God's words, they're God's thoughts, they're God's promises to you and to me. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the short answer. The longer answer has two parts. And uh, on your manual on page 17, we see that in the past, God has spoken. He's revealed himself through the Bible. And the secondly, that God still speaks to us today through it. But let's turn to page 1197 in your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Page 1197, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 
All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word, all scripture, is God-breathed. God-breathed is a Greek word there, theonustos. Theo meaning God, like theology, the study of God, and nustos, um, like words like pneumonia, uh, means breathe, to do with the breath. Theonustos, God-breathed. Man has penned what is in the Bible. We've got different authors. But it, it is all God-inspired or God-breathed. It is as from the mouth of God. That's what it tells us. Therefore, God, therefore, it carries God's authority. It is the word of God. And therefore, it carries God's authority for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as it tells us there. I.e., it's our manual for living. Whether it be on relationships, family, work, money, sex, whatever it is, it is relevant to our lives and it's authoritative to our lives. You might be saying, well, that sounds a wee bit restrictive, Andy, you know, all these rules. Won't that squeeze the life out of me? I'll lose my freedom to enjoy life. Let me give you an example to illustrate how that's uh, not necessarily true. If you've got a large bit of land and you've got one car that's driving around in it, you don't have any need for a highway code. That car can drive around as much as it likes, do anything it wants. You don't need to drive on the left. You don't need to stop at traffic lights. No problem. But if you introduce a second car, then things begin to get more complicated. You need to have some rules to avoid collision. So maybe if you're at the top half of the land and you, you drive to the in the north you drive to the east if you're in the south you drive to the west whatever it is, something to bring some sort of rules to pre prevent collision but the more cars you introduce into that system, the more complex the system gets and the more complex the laws need to get for, to protect and God's laws aren't there to ruin life they're there to protect life to protect people from hurt from being hurt physically from being hurt emotionally and from being hurt spiritually which many people don't fully understand and are not aware of, but that is why they're there. So when God says you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, or you shall not commit adultery, he's not trying to ruin your fun. God is stopping people from getting hurt, because that's what happens when you murder, when you steal, when you commit adultery. People are hurt. Sex before marriage is not God's plan, or outside of marriage. It's his plan of it is for inside marriage. And in that way, uh, there is no of the problems that God foresees. God says, the whole world is yours. Go and enjoy it. But here's the boundaries. Here's some of the corner posts. Otherwise, people will get hurt. And you will get hurt. This is the best way to live. But so often we think we know best. And it's like with the hi-fi or the piece of electrical equipment. It's always, if all else fails, we read the maker's instructions. And we have to wait for everything else to fail before we actually read what the maker says. And so often with our lives, it's only when all else fails do we read the maker's instructions. Here are the maker's instructions. God's word. God's manual for us for life. Why wait till people get hurt before we read it? Start now. Our manual for life. Well, the, f the first thing I would say is that God has spoken. God has revealed himself. If you turn to page one two. 01. 
Hebrews, first chapter of Hebrews. Um, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So he's spoken in the past through the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, and he's also spoken to us by his Son through Jesus, which is the, the Gospels. So if you think of history as a stage, imagine a theatre, but the stage is history. God's character is hidden behind the curtain of that stage. And we don't know what he's like. But at different times through history, recorded in the Old Testament, God has opened that curtain. And with the light shining on a particular feature of his character, and revealed it to the Jewish people of old. Then he's opened it again with the light shining on a different feature of his character, and so on. And so as you go through history and as you read the accounts of the Old Testament, we see and read and learn more about the character of God. Here's an example. God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but at the last minute he provided a substitute sacrifice. And then he told him one of his names, the names of God, was Jehovah Jireh, which is Hebrew for the God who provides. So here's a practical example to back up a truth. He's revealed this to one man, Abraham. He said, I'm a provider, and he's demonstrated his provision. Later on, not only to one man, but he set the people of Israel free from slavery and led them to the promised land. But because of their disobedience and lack of faith, a 40-day journey turned out into a 40-year journey through the wilderness. But throughout this time in the desert, God miraculously provided food for them, and their shoes never wore out. 40 years. So they begin to understand, as a nation, that God provides for all his people. And as we read that, we can, we can learn from that as well. That's simply one aspect of God's character revealed through the prophets. And obviously there's the whole wealth of characters of God, character of God, to look at. So that's the importance of the Old Testament. But then it says, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. So he's revealed himself through Jesus. John said, Jesus was the word of God. Words are used to communicate, aren't they? When you speak, you use words. But Jesus didn't write a book. He was the book. He was a living word, a living book. He was the word. We all know a picture is better than a thousand words. And how much more better, how much better are actions than words? So Jesus was God in action. He did things, he said things, and he taught about something called the kingdom of God. Not a physical place, but a way of life, a relationship with God. And he not only talked about it, but he demonstrated it. So as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. God in action, on earth, in the flesh. And like four artists in a studio painting the same person from four different angles, we have these four men writing about the life of Jesus, but inspired by God. Now, some people ask, can I trust the accuracy of the Bible? And uh, we looked particularly at the New Testament on week one. But the Old Testament, we had the, the Jewish people, okay, and they had very great reverence for their sacred scriptures. They would die for their scriptures. And they also had a group of skilled people called scribes who followed strict disciplines in regard to their scriptures. With meticulous care and fidelity, these men were pledged to fulfill the following conditions in copying scriptures. 
And I'll have to summarise some of these. Uh, so the scrolls were written on skins of clean animals. They were prepared for use in the synagogue only by a Jew. And they were fastened together with strings from clean animals. Each scroll must contain specific number of columns equal throughout the entire book. The length of each column must not extend over less than 48 lines or more than 60 lines. The column breadth must consist of exactly 30 letters. They must use a specially prepared recipe of black ink. An authentic copy must be the example. Copy nothing from memory. Between every consonant, the space of a thread. Between every section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The first five books of the, of the Bible must terminate exactly with a line. Um, the reverence for the scripture and the name of God so much that a fresh quill would be used to pen the sacred name and refuse to acknowledge the presence of a king when writing that name. And then he had to produce a master copy. So these were the, the sort of rules, the very accurate rules that they had for copying the, the scriptures. But later on in the 6th century, the Hebrew text was standardized because it had no vowels. And so they added vowel points to ensure proper pronunciation. And then they went even further in their disciplines. They copied letter by letter. You couldn't take a word like the and copy it across. You had to take the T, T, H, H, E, E. Copy it by letter through the page, through the section, through the book. They had to count the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. So you would know how many times a particular letter occurred, and you could check it. You had to calculate the middle word so that you knew what the middle word should be, and you could check it. And if you found more than three mistakes in a manuscript, you had to destroy it. Not throw it away, but destroy it, so that it could not be used and thought of as a, a genuine can you imagine making your fourth mistake? Happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. But can we verify this accuracy? Well, the answer is yes, we can. Up until 1947, the oldest complete Hebrew manuscripts historians had were dated about 900 AD. Okay, so that's about a thousand years ago. But thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947, we now have a complete Hebrew manuscripts dating back to 125 BC. That's a thousand years older than the ones we had beforehand. And if you take Isaiah chapter 53, which is a, an important uh, chapter in the Bible, prophesying that Jesus is coming. Well, if you look at the first copy, which is 125 BC, and you look at the second copy, 916 AD, that's about a thousand years later, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11, and does not affect the meaning greatly. Furthermore, this word is supported by other manuscripts. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there is only one three-letter word in question after 1,000 years of transmission. And this word does not significantly change the meaning of the passage. There's also a lot of archaeological evidence that confirms the Bible's accuracy. 
and more than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Places considered, considered fictitious in the Bible, like Sodom and Gomorrah, have been shown to be real through unearthing stone tablets from the ancient kingdom of Ebla over 4,000 years ago. So we can trust its accuracy. But what other evidence is there that it's really inspired by God? We only have time, really, to look at one aspect of this tonight, and that is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy, the purpose of Bible prophecy, is to let us know that God exists and that he has a plan for this world. By foretelling persons, places, and events hundreds of years before they happen, the Bible demonstrates a knowledge of the future that is far too specific to be labelled a good guess. Let's look at an example of fulfilled prophecy, as this gives very strong testimony to their inspiration by God. Well, there's a, there's a king called Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. And uh, there's a prophecy here, if you look at it on the overhead, it talks about this guy Cyrus. Now this prophecy was written, this can be dated to 700 BC. King Cyrus is named, and it also says that he will give the order to rebuild Jerusalem and lay temple foundations. Now this is at a point when Jerusalem is still standing. There's no problems in Jerusalem, so prophesying it needs to be rebuilt it seems particularly ridiculous. But about 100 years later, in 586 BC, the city and the temple were destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then later, in 539 BC, the Persians conquered it. And shortly after, a Persian king named Cyrus gave the order for the temple to be rebuilt. This is 160 years after the prophecy. And that's verifiable by history. Now that's an amazing example, but it isn't isolated. There are hundreds of such fulfilled prophecies. And there's no way that it's a coincidence. On Good Friday, when Jesus died, there were 29 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus in that one day. Fulfilled prophecy shows God's existence and his inspiration of this book. So that's the first thing, that God has spoken. The second thing talks about God's relationship. Because God speaks to us today through the Bible. Hence why it's so popular, it's so precious to people. Romans 10 says that faith comes by the word of God. And uh, it's almost like the Bible's not just a set of rules, it's not a set of things to, to a history book, although it is. It's also, it's like a love letter. And you want to read it time and time again. Why did two people in love go on saying that they love one another. After a time, you might think that they've got the message and that further expressions of love were unnecessary. But the answer is that they need constantly to strengthen mutual trust and so deepen the relationship between them. Similarly, we may know in our minds that God loves us and cares for us, but our hearts need repeated assurance. And that's why we need to read the Bible thoughtfully and prayerfully, because God speaks through it and speaks into our lives and our hearts. There's a chap called Martin Niemüller, and he was in a concentration camp for many years because of his Christian faith. But he was allowed one personal possession, a Bible. And he wrote this. The Bible, 
What did this book mean to me during the long and weary years of solitary confinement? The word of God was simply everything to me. Comfort and strength, guidance and hope, master of my days and companion of my nights. The bread which kept me from starvation and the water of life which refreshed my soul. And even more, solitary confinement ceased to be solitary. Martin Niemuller. God speaks not only to those who are Christians, but to those who are not yet Christians. Before I was a Christian, I was given a, a Gideon's New Testament from school. And I struggled to read it. I could hardly understand it. And I didn't know where to begin to start. But there was a section at the beginning on faith. And it took me to Hebrews chapter 11. And I read it, and somehow I realised there had to be a God. As I read that passage, God spoke to me through that passage. David Suchet, who you may know from Poirot, he's an actor. And before he was a Christian, he was sitting in his bath one night, and he suddenly had a strong desire to read the New Testament. And he says this, he says, In the New Testament, I suddenly discovered the way that life should be followed. So God speaks to those who are not yet Christians through the Bible. But he also speaks to us as Christians. We read it. We're shown by God how to become more like Jesus. And God renews our thinking. He shows our attitudes. It shows us the way forward. It shows us how to live life. And as we receive God's word into our lives for today, we begin to find these things that are listed in the, on page 18 of the manual. We find joy and peace in the face of storm. Psalm 23 and verse 5. We find guidance. Psalm 119 and verse 105. Health and healing comes to our bodies. Proverbs 4 and verse 20 to 22. We find that there is defense against spiritual attack as we use the word of God. And we see the example of, uh, of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 where he used God's word against the devil. We find power, particularly over fear in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And we find cleansing. John chapter 15 and verse 3. It cleanses us. It cleanses our minds. It cleanses our souls. Like water pouring through a sieve. It cleanses us. Um, an example of, uh, of how God's words had brought power into my life. When I became a Christian, I particularly bad. Um, I had a fear, really, of telling other people about my, my faith. I just couldn't overcome that. Whenever Christianity came up in conversation, I used to shy away from it. But the short story is that I, I got a cold sore and the big ugly things that you get on your lip and you hide away from them and you're, you're very embarrassed about them. And I suddenly realised that I was just as embarrassed about my cold sore as I was about my Christian faith, about Jesus. And then I read in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, I read this, I said, read, reads, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And God spoke to me through that. I knew that I had to stand up for Jesus if he was going to stand up for me and acknowledge me before his Father. And so I, I acted upon that. I found it very difficult. But my decision was that I was going to stand up for my faith. I was going to be baptised as a public profession of my faith, invite everyone I knew, my family, my friends, um, folks from the sports team I played for, and folks from uh, my, my university class. And then not long after that, a few weeks after, I went to uh, an Easter celebration service uh, one Saturday, Saturday night, Easter Saturday. And uh, 
some folks from Hong Kong were there and they gave their testimony of, of God's power in their lives. So I asked them to pray for me at the end. I had a very real sense of God's spirit come on me and fill my life. And it was like Jesus was there right beside me with his arm around me saying, this guy's with me. He stood up for me, this guy's with me. And he just flooded me with his, his, his love and I knew he was real. And ever since then I've been telling people that Jesus is alive and that he's real and it can change lives. And the fear that I once had several weeks earlier had gone as a result of God's word coming into my life. So then how do we hear God speak to us through the Bible? Well, uh, first of all, we need some time. We need to plan ahead. We need to decide that we're going to give God some time. I'm going to read it tomorrow. Or I'm going to make three appointments with God this week. Um, I spoke to somebody recently and uh, I suggested these passages for the first three. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. Second one, Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. And the third one, Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51. And make those appointments with God. They're the passages I'm going to look at. And uh, not when you feel like it, but you've made a, a decision. Maybe morning's best for you, maybe evening's best for you. And just start with five or ten minutes. Develop a regular pattern, you know, every morning or, as I say, making three appointments every week. And keep at it. Somebody said that it takes three months to break a habit and it takes three months to make a habit. So let's make a habit and let's persist until we have made it. So we need to spend time, then we need a place. Jesus found a solitary place, often to talk with his father. A place of quiet, maybe it's a corner of a room, and a chair at your desk, wherever it is. And to take a Bible, obviously, to read his word, a notebook and a pen, so we can write down some of the things. Then a method may be useful. And uh, Obviously, we want to start with prayer. Ask God to speak to us. He's alive. He wants to speak into your life. But let's ask him to. And then read the passage. You can use a reading plan. Or you can use Bible notes. Or you can work out your own plan. Or you can start with one of the Gospels. And uh, read through a couple of times. There's different ways I've listed in the manual. A chapter a day. A section a day. You can get uh, these plans so you can read the whole Bible in a year. You can use a word study. Uh, you can memorize your favorite verse. You can read a whole book in one go, uh, like James. You can meditate on a verse a day. There are a whole variety of ways. But then to ask yourself these three questions. First question, what does it say about God? What does it say? What does it say about God? And what does it say about us? Secondly, what does it mean? What does it really mean to think about that? And then thirdly, how does it apply? How does it apply to my life, to my family, to church, to my relationships, to every part of our lives? And some people find this little uh, mnemonic useful to help them work out how it applies. And it uses the word space, S-P-A-C-E. And uh, the S stands for sin. Is there a sin to avoid? The P, is there a promise to believe? A, is there an attitude to change? C, is there a command to obey? And E, is there an example to follow? S-P-A-C-E, space. And then write down the thoughts that come to you and use them in prayer. 
thank God for what he's saying to you and uh, write down the queries you have, the questions that you have. So you can ask other Christians, what does this mean? I don't understand this. And then respond to the whole thing in prayer, fourthly. Thank God for speaking. Ask for understanding and ask for the power to live out the things that he said. Because the most important thing, fifthly, is that we put it into practice. We have to put it into practice if it's going to make a difference. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So then that's a, that's a method that might help you get started and to persist with it, to continue with it. You can write things out. It's very, very helpful. To conclude then, uh, back to Psalm 1, which was on page 543. And there are three promises in this psalm for those that make the Bible their delight. Page 543, Psalm 1. And in verse 3, we see them. Whoever delights in the law of the Lord, verse 2, and, and on his law meditates, makes Bible an important part of his life. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. You'll produce fruit. And that'll be fruit of Christian character. You'll have substance as a person. And uh, others will be blessed through you. That's the first promise. There'll be fruit in your life. Secondly, it says it will not wither. Your leaf does not wither. We'll have perseverance. We will have steadfast qualities in our lives. But we must be in contact with God. We must receive from his word each day. And we must have our roots planted deep into him have those steadfast qualities so when the heat comes we will not wither third promise whatever he does prospers now that's not necessarily material prosperity though it may be often it's not but it's prosperity in things that really matter prosperity in our relationship with God prosperity in our relationship with each other and prosperity in terms of our character whatever he does prospers but these things are far more important than silver or gold. And I'd encourage you tonight to say, it's my determination from now on to make the Bible my delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown yourself to us through your word and through the life of Jesus. And we thank you that your word brings joy to our hearts and it opens up this relationship with you. Help us to hear your voice more clearly and to obey it, Lord. Amen.